So if you've got a Bible, we're in John 5. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to read um, verses 1 through 9 um, to catch us up where we left off and to kind of leave off at verse 9, which will set us up for tonight's message. So chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse number 1 through 9, to remind us of the story that we read last week. And if you were here, if you weren't here, um, it ca- will fill you in pretty quickly. After this, there was a, a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time of year into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been lying in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered and said, Sir, I have no man, no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And for tonight's purposes, this next, these next few words is very important. And that day was the Sabbath. Now, last time we studied this story uh, pretty in-depth, so we're probably pretty familiar with it. Um, but if you aren't, and if you have not uh, been with us for our John study, this is the third of seven signs that John is using to prop up his story and prop up his gospel. Um, and if you're wondering, what is the purpose of John's gospel? Uh, what, is, what is the purpose of these seven signs? John, at the end of the book, so we'll sneak at the back of it and see what he tells us about these signs. At the end of the book, John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John says, I saw a lot of stuff when I followed Jesus. I have so many stories to tell, but I have narrowed in on these very selective stories, these 21 chapters centered around these seven signs. I have focused in on these seven signs, on these specific stories, because my agenda is that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the long-awaited, the one and only Messiah. Now, in this setting of John 5, there are so many disabled and broken and hurting people hoping for some miracle that may or may not take place. The rumor was, or the theory was, or the legend was that an angel would stir the waters, giving one person an opportunity to be healed. Men like this, uh, like this individual, had been coming to or being brought to this spot for years and years, their whole lives even, hoping that they might could somehow get into the water or maybe God would show up, God would decide to heal more than one one day. Um, men, men and women were brought to this place for years and years and years, hoping that this annual festival would bring them a miracle. But truth be told, the annual festival left more disappointed and crushed than it ever did satisfied and restored, which is really not just a testimony of this event, but religion in general, the system of the Jews, the system of all people that are any religious system of any day, this is the result, disappointment and crushed spirits rather than satisfied and restored spirits. 
And on this day, Jesus came to bring hope to the party. But the way he did it demonstrates and punctuates that he didn't come just to heal the guy. He came to give him what he didn't even know he needed to bridge this man's heart to God's. Jesus, no doubt, walked past and stepped over, ignoring many cries and many pleas just to come to this one man and reach out his hand and change this one man's life to show the world what he came to do and who he truly is. Jesus said to this man, Do you want to get better? Of course he wanted to get better. This is why I come to this place every year, Jesus. What kind of question is that? Jesus said, of course you want to get better, so take my hand and get out of this line. You're not getting anywhere, and it's not helping you, is it? 38 years worth of no help. How about stepping out of line and taking my hand because you're going to be different from this day forward? See, this makes you think that Jesus was known by all these people, or maybe at least people heard of a healer or a miracle worker in the midst And he asked this man, he asked this man to take Jesus by faith instead of continuing to live by sight. This man was in a line and he thought that this was his future. And I think many of us, we can relate to this story because we have been in line or are in line that isn't a line that is not taking us anywhere. And the question that Jesus asked us in that text was, how much longer are you going to wait in a line that isn't bringing you results, that isn't getting you anywhere, that isn't improving your spiritual walk, that isn't doing anything for your heart? Your greatest needs are not being met, but you still are in that line. Why? Maybe while we wait, we're still accepting less than best. We're still dabbling in things that are counterproductive to our overall well-being. As these were, we're blind, we're disabled, we're numb because of things that we've been through. And the longer we wait, the worse our condition gets. And this is a question that we closed with last week. What is God wanting us to do that is different than we believe is possible? Different than what we may want, different than what we may want, but maybe exactly what we need to get to where God wants us to be. We need God to give us a vision for our future, give us the ability to move beyond our past, give us feeling to believe and trust again. God can and God will, and He's waiting on people to get out of line and say, yes, I want to see clear, I want to do more, I want to feel better. This man chose to take Jesus at His word to live as if, in spite of what was. Against His fate, He placed His faith in Jesus. And we find out later, he doesn't even know who Jesus was. He had never heard about Jesus like many of this group maybe had heard. He didn't know who had healed him other than the fact that he heard God's voice say, do you want to get better? And he said, of course I do. He entered into freedom, liberty, and true life, out of bondage into grace. And listen, no matter what that leads to, hope will not be deferred, but rather our hearts will be made well. And what we find out about Jesus in this story, and tonight as we read more, Jesus' entire motive and mission was to instill this kind of hope in all people. He was passionate about, he was sold out to see people go from down to up, defeat to victory, death to life. Even if this set him at odds with religion, he was going to do it. And we're going to see this play out in our text tonight as Jesus intended this to happen from this scenario because he wants to draw a contrast between what religion wasn't doing for people and what he came to do for people. And this contrast still needs to be drawn today in our world because religion hasn't went anywhere. It's bigger and stronger than ever. 
And it's got more people in bondage than ever before. Now you may wonder, why would religion be against these things? Why would religion be against changing lives and helping people? Why would religion that is supposed to be sanctioned by God and surrounded by God's truth and God's purposes, why would it be against what Jesus came to do? That's a good question. See, religion is a system of man set up to keep good people from falling out. Religion was not started by God. Religion, not just Judaism, but any form of religion, was started by people that thought they were holy and wanted to somehow prevent good people from falling by the wayside. But it was never meant to help people. It was just meant to sustain the people they already have or they already seem to be doing good enough. But Jesus is not a system. He's the Son of God who's come down to save all people who've fallen out. So he doesn't come to try to keep good people from falling out. We've already fallen out, and we're not that good. He comes to rescue us and save us. God never intended any institution that bears his name to be counterproductive to the Savior who bears his name. But that's what man did to it. And it's important to talk about this because man still does that to it. So we can properly identify and maybe rectify if it needs to be done in our own movements. That's why this sign took place. To set up this come to Jesus moment, literally, for Judaism, this entire miracle was a strike against the hornet's nest. And believe me, the hornets come out when Jesus walked on to the scene. Again, verse number 9 ends with this ominous stinger. That day was the Sabbath day. Now, why would that be a problem? Why would that be controversial? A day meant for worship, a day meant to spread the news or the message of God and the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who parts the waters, the God who slays the giants, the God who promises and provides. Why would it be controversial that God healed a man or Jesus in God's presence or in God's place healed a man on the Sabbath day? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse number 10 says, The Jews said to him who was cured. Now, that tells us this man, as soon as he got healed, he ran to the temple. He had never been allowed in the temple because of his disability. He had been branded from his birth as, he, as an outcast, as in, unclean, as impure, as not accepted. And now that he's healed, all his life as a Jew, he's heard, the temple is glorious, the temple is awesome, it's where God lives. Some random stranger healed him, and he's thinking, I've got to go to the temple and tell people what God has done for me. I'm going to run there, I'm going to shout, I'm going to worship, I'm going to exclaim that my God has healed me. I can't wait to finally meet the people that I've heard, by, heard about and dreamt about. So he runs to the temple, and people recognize this guy because they've been seeing him come to their festival and pay the fee to get in for 38 years since he was a baby brought by his parents. No doubt they may have met him when he was, when he was a child when his parents brought him to be dedicated, but they said, oh, we can't dedicate broken people. We can't dedicate unclean people. He's not welcome here. Take him to the festival every year and maybe he'll be healed, but don't bet on it. So he runs to the temple and the Jews meet him and you would expect they would say, we are so glad to see you. But as he starts coming toward the gates, is that that guy? Is that, is that him? 
Is that the guy that was laying at the pool that someone said they saw someone talk to him and, and, and somebody claims he got up and walked and we didn't believe it, but there he is. He's still got his mat on his shoulder. He's got his you know, sleeping bag across his back. What is he doing coming here? So the Jews greet him and said to him who was cured, as in they admitted he had been healed. They admitted this was an undeniable sign of God. The Jews met him and said to him, the leaders, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. I'm sorry, sir, but you're not welcome. You've got your sleeping bag on your back. Now, what's that all about? The Old Testament law um, was known as the written Torah. But you've probably heard that there was many more commandments than just the ten and what is described in the Old Testament. The Jews had a thing called the tradition of the elders, the tradition of the elders, and it was known as the oral Torah. Um, it is believed that Moses brought the word of God off the mountain, but God inspired the leaders, Moses, Joshua, the prophets, on th through the history of Israel. God gave them special revelation that was to surround the law and was to help create a fence around the written law that had the same authority. And this written law really created this category under each commandment. So not only were there these Ten Commandments, but there were these categories under each commandment that clarified what each commandment meant and how deep and wide the, their, their jurisdiction went. And the non-written oral Torah says that the Sabbath, there were 39 categories of things you could not do on the Sabbath day. Not just 39 things, but 39 categories. And one of those 39 categories said you could not carry something from one place to the other. And one of those bullet points under that category was you can't carry your bed or your mat or your sleeping bag. Again, it's kind of silly, but we weren't there, so it's hard for us to understand. So he was breaking a category under a commandment, a commandment that, mind you, was, was about taking a break from work and trusting in God, not about taking a break from loving people and having compassion for people and helping people. Or carrying your mat across the road. But you see how religion gets. It puts all hands on deck. And not for the best. See, this is what happens. If and when we forget. The why behind the what. Because that commandment had nothing to do with not carrying something on a certain day of the week. It had everything to do with resting in God and letting Him carry your burdens. But somehow, someway, religion made this so complicated. It made it so systematized. And when we forget the why behind the what, we lose the why and we lose the who. See, this is what happens, to make this even more in our face and personal, this is what happens when defending a theological system, an ideology, or politics take precedent over the people for whom the system was put in place. Because the Jewish people took the commandments that were meant to help people and guide people and made it somehow work against people. Because they had more passion for the system than they did for the sinners. More passion for the system and the beliefs than they did for the people that the system and beliefs were supposed to serve. This is what happens when embracing the systems over the people 
when we embrace the systems over the people they were set up to serve. So we may say, well, I know some Catholics that need to hear that. I know some Democrats that need to hear that. I know some people that need to hear this. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't roll, don't roll this off your back just yet. Look in the mirror because we are all guilty of this sin. And I know you know some people that need to hear this, but I think we need to hear it. Here's why it's a big deal. When what's best for people, when what's best for people is no longer what's most important to us, we may find ourselves, we actually find ourselves at odds with God. Because these people were just trying to keep the system intact. It didn't matter this man had just been healed. It didn't matter that he had his life back given back to him. It didn't matter that he was just rejoicing and overjoyed. He was breaking a category of a commandment. We've got to make sure he knows and he backs off. That's what happens. And when we, when we prioritize what's best for the system rather than what's best for the people, we find ourselves at odds with God. Say, so Justin, how do you know that? How do you know that? Because John, who is writing this story and is writing every word with a very specific purpose in mind, John tells us the thesis for God's entire activity. Y'all know it very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So John says, hey, remember why I'm writing this story. Remember Jesus and Nicodemus. Remember the thesis for this entire purpose, this entire story. God loves people and God prioritizes people before he prioritizes any of this other junk that gets in the way. Jesus prioritized all those made in his image. Anything I do, anything we do, anything we do that gets in the way of this is a sin. Anything I do to hurt someone, anything I do to wedge something between somebody that God loves and God, that's a sin. You say, well, they were the ones sinning first. <laughs> anything that I do that does not convey the value God has ascribed to his people is a sin. For people like me, for people like us, people that wear a microphone and know the Bible so well, it's easy to bring a verse out of context that build walls and justify this and that and locking this pe those people out and this person out. It's tempting and can be a subtle and can be subtle to take a verse and leverage it for power and leverage it for a witty point to push a particular convin convincing view. This guy says, "He who made me well said to me, "Take up your bed and walk." He says, "Hey y'all, I don't even know the guy's name." But y'all are about to throw me out of here. They've got him, you know, one, one guy under both, under both arms are ready to cast him out of the temple, right? Ready to stone him, maybe. And he's thinking, listen, guys, I wasn't trying to break the Sabbath. I didn't know what day it was. I'd been at that festival for two weeks. I had to get my spot early. It was like Black Friday. I was brought there and dropped off, and I had no idea for what day of the week it was. I had no idea what time it was. I just saw a guy walk by everybody and come to me and look at me and say, hey, you want to get better? And of course I said I want to get better. And y'all have walked by me for years, and y'all have told me that God was against me, that somehow I inherited this sin from my parents by osmosis or something, and I was born with this problem because my mama sinned or my daddy sinned, and all y'all ever tried to do for me is to get my money and put me in line. And I had enough of it. Go 
Mr. 38-year infirmity guy, right? I mean, I would have been clapping. We would have been there just saying, man, if you give it to him, guy. Y'all told me I was getting what I deserved, so I guess this guy gave me what I didn't deserve. And guess what? I don't care. He offered me help, and I took it. And look at me. I am walking, I am alive, and I'm happy about it. Woo! He looked me in the eyes and asked me if I wanted to get better, and I thought long and hard. Religion hadn't made getting better an option, but this guy, Jesus, did. I was in line. All the numb and blind and paralyzed people we were in line to nowhere, and this man asked me if I wanted to get better, and I needed to get out of line, and I thought, heck yeah, why not? And I got out of line, and I came here to worship, and y'all meet me here as the, you know, rain on your parade committee, and maybe I don't want to come into this place anyway now, but I thought I was coming to the right place. In verse number 12, these people are a piece of work. They ask him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Oh, we're so sorry to tell you this, sir. But you know that healing someone on the Sabbath day is a sin too? What? One of the 39 categories says you can't practice medicine on the Sabbath. And if this guy healed you or helped you or wet cat and waved his wand over you or whatever, he committed a sin too. So now we're not just going to have to kill you. we got to kill him. Who was this man? Man, these people are great, right? Could you give us his name? Because we're really more worried about him. And they kind of knew who it was, don't, don't you think? Verse 13. But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. This is just so funny, not in a good way. Accusing this man and accusing the man that healed him as having sinned. What had he done wrong? Nothing. I mean, the guy that was healed, he had spent 38 years lying on the ground. He got up and went to the temple to worship God for a miracle he had received from this stranger but was greeted by an entourage of religious hacks that accused him of sinning. <laughs> now, I wouldn't believe this, but I've been in church long enough, and you have too. You've seen this with your own eyes, haven't you? Maybe not this exact episode, but this happens every single week on every single road where a church is gathered. Religion meets would-be worshipers at the doors of churches and judges rather than embraces, accuses rather than accepts, casts out rather than welcome in. I've seen it with my own eyes. It breaks my heart and it breaks God's heart, but it happens, doesn't it? It happened right here and it still happens today. How can we consciously do this? I don't know, but here's a guy who literally had just gotten his life back, gone to worship, and was met at the door and sized up and deemed unworthy of the house because he clearly was a sinner. And this is where it gets even better. And scholars have pulled their hair out trying to figure out what Jesus means by this, but I'll tell you what I think he means. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See? You have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Now, what had this guy done? Nothing. But they were accusing Jesus and this guy of sinning, and Jesus finds this guy, and he kind of, you know, in an incognito, comes up to this guy and says, Wink, wink, you better stop sinning. Because me and you, when we're in trouble, 
I healed you, and you got up to come to worship, and that's a sin? I mean, good grief, who, who runs this place? I Man, I'd like to talk to this place's boss. Where's he at? Something worse might happen to us. Oh, the Pharisees might get us. What could be worse? This guy had been on the ground for 38 years. How do you punish a guy that had had no life, right? Had nothing to lose. You know what's so amazing? This guy wasn't afraid. He met Jesus and his fear was gone. Religion could not take that confidence away from him. See, when we recognize who Jesus is, we will lose our fear of religion and religious people. When I first started preaching, I was scared to death of preachers because they size you up and they chew you and they spit you out. And I'm one of them, I'm one of them but I don't do that. But I've sat down at tables with people and you know, they've got their way and it's going to be their way or the highway and they want you to do it their way. They want you to bounce and walk like them and talk like them. They want you to do what they do. And if you don't, they're not going to include you in their system. That's happened to me throughout years. And listen, I've decided a long time ago, I've met Jesus. <laughs> I'm not afraid of you. I'm not afraid, I'm not for sale, I've been redeemed, I've been set free from being owned and controlled and having my worth determined by some third party of religious so-and-sos. See, when you choose to follow Jesus, religion will lose its grip on you. Because you don't need it. Jesus wasn't afraid, and this guy is fearless because his big brother Jesus is next to him, so they walk to confront the religious leaders unapologetically fearless of what religion has to say. In verse 15, the man departed, and not, because, not away from Jesus. He had Jesus with him, and they go and they tell the religious leaders that it was Jesus that made him well. And I'm thinking, this guy is like, hey, we're ready to take these guys on. Now that I know who you are, I mean, now that you're with me, let's go take these guys on. They, they have nothing on us. I'm not afraid. Are you afraid? And Jesus is like, no, I'm not afraid at all. I've done this before. These guys are crazy, but we'll take care of them, buddy. Let's go. Verse 16, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Persecuted doesn't mean they hurt him. It means, in this context, they cast him out of the temple, said, you're not welcome here anymore. We're, 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 you're a heretic. Get out. And Jesus is like, you don't really want to kick me out of this place. It's not going to end well if you do. Verse 17, Jesus said, My father has been working until now, and I've been working. He says, guys, I want to tell you something. If I offended y'all because I healed this guy, let me just tell y'all, God must offend you all the time because God always works. He works every day of the week. He doesn't even know what day it is. His, his mind is so much bigger and thousand years is one day and all that you know, uh, religious talk. He says, I, I, if I offend you, God must offend you because even God breaks the rules that you've conjured up. God would not be accepted in your temple. By the way, you've already rejected him. Because God is for the very people religion often stands against. God is constantly working to make His choice known. And what is His choice? Who are His chosen people? Everybody that Jesus died for. And listen to their response. The Jews sought all the more to kill Him because He had not only broken the Sabbath, but He also said that God was His Father... And their, their understanding of that, he's making himself equal to God. Who do you think you are, Jesus? And that's John's hope that we wrestle with that question. Who is Jesus? Because Jesus made it clear who he was by what he did. 
The resemblance isn't and wasn't coincidental. He's already told us so far. He's the Word of God made flesh. He's the favor of God. He's the, uh, the Lamb of God. He's the new platform. He's the new wine. Why did Jesus do what He did? So that people could arrive at the conclusion about who Jesus was without Him forcing them to believe it. They answered the question for themselves. Verse number 19 and 20. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son of God, the Son can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. So Jesus is rubbing them. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself does, and He will show Him greater works than these that you may marvel so your jaw would be a gap and you would be convinced that this is God in flesh. He says, you want to know what God is really like? Watch, listen to, and follow me. Verse 21, listen to this. For as the Father raises the dead and even gives life to them, even the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but He's committed all judgment to the Son. So Jesus is telling him, hey, God's given me the authority to judge everybody if I wanted to. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Most surely I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in Him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. He has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. So Jesus doubles down, I am who you suspect me to be. But notice the message here. Jesus held judgment in his hands, yet he chose to bear it on his back. He chose to bear it on a cross. He goes on to tell them of all the activity in the Old Testament of God had been building up to this day. Skip down to verse number 36 and listen to him talk about what God said in the Old Testament ending with John the Baptist. He says this, I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have never heard, of, you've never heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. And he says to them, guys, y'all are about to miss God in front of you. Jesus put an exclamation point on this third sign as if it revealed God's compassionate heart more than anything before it. He confronts their misunderstanding, rejection of Him in this next verse. These people thought they had the market on God, but Jesus came to flesh out what the Old Testament only had teased. He says, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have the life you've been looking for. Jesus said, I know, it, I know it's confusing. 
Because up until now, you've only had Abraham and Moses and David and Solomon. Up until now, you've had an excuse, but you don't have this excuse anymore. Eternal life is not in your interpretation of the Word, but in my living demonstration of the Word. Because as John said, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. It's standing right in front of you, Jesus says. And John, writing all these years later, knowing the world's on fire, knowing that people are dying, knowing the world is broken, John says, listen, this is why it's so important that you soak all this in. John, who writes and reflects about this later, he says, that which was from the beginning, we heard, we saw with our eyes, we looked upon, we touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, we have seen it, we testify to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. John says to his brethren years later, this is everything. Please don't miss it. The entire word led up to this. Here's why we talked about this tonight. In a world full of ideas and religions, God made it easy. He showed up and he spoke up. He made it clear about what matters most to him. Some of us within us, this notion, there's a notion to push back. There's a tension that comes with this conversation. But Jesus is trying to emphasize what matters most. And before we get up in arms, consider this. So often we focus on what our little ideas, our little theories. If we were to get all these confirmed, little would change. But if we would put on blast what God has already, what God has already made loud and clear, everything could change. So what is the point of this story? What is the point of this long, exhaustive sermon that Jesus just gave us? Get ready for it. The you beside you is more important than your view. The you beside me is more important than my view. I'm not saying your view isn't important. I've got a lot of views, and I like them. They might be wrong, they might be right. But what we know is unquestionably true, that God operates from a place of compassion and love. And in this conversation, Jesus put all the yous in front of all the views. The you beside you is more important than the view inside you. And that doesn't mean we compromise convictions. It just means we prioritize compassion so we don't make the same mistake this generation made. Compassion can channel conversion and change, and all will channel, that's all will channel it. God chose to love the world. It took God's love to change our eternal destination. So why do we think we should leverage anything besides God's love? That's the gospel. That's what brings hope to all people. And that's where the Jews and Jesus decided to walk away from each other as having no part in one another's future. And that's why the religious leaders from this day forward decide Jesus must be killed because we don't accept his priorities. And that's why Jesus said Judaism has to go because I don't accept what they've done to my father's movement. Do you think the church still struggles with this stuff? 
So we've got some questions that we need to think about before we get out of here. Does your version of religion or politics get in the way of loving people that God loves? Does it? A little bit? A lot? If it does, can you live with that? Let's take it a step further. Does your version of Christianity get in the way of loving people that God loves? Maybe it's not even Christianity at all if it does. Religion gets nervous at this to suggest that always erring on the side of pro-use instead of pro-views is somehow putting us on the wrong side of God. Some people say that, but that's preposterous. To, to suggest that being for people makes us for sin is to suggest that Jesus was for sin. And obviously we know that wasn't the case. He was undeniably for people, yet of course he wasn't for sin. It killed him, as it will anybody. Jesus was comfortable being criticized for being for people. So we can be too. I would rather be criticized for being pro-people than, being, than be appreciated for not being pro-people. Sin did not get in the way of God displaying His love, and it shouldn't get in our way either. We can't use that excuse. We can't forget Jesus modeled absolute rightness, but He died for absolute sinfulness. He cleaned up around the edges. We just need to make a straight line through and show people how they fit into God's family. Let me say this before we quit. My approach toward non-believers and believers is different. But it's also the same. To non-believers, my priority is to show how God feels about them before... I show them how God feels about their sin. Because God cares about them in spite of their sin. And their sin has been covered on the cross. God wants them. And my priority is not to hammer them about their sin, it's to show them that God loves them. And trust that God can take care of the hard part. But to believers... To believers, I assume that you know your sin, you know what your sin did to your Savior, and God expects better from you. So you better believe it that I and we expect Christians to know and to accept the right way. But regardless of which category I or we put you in, God puts you in the only one that matters. A deeply loved son or daughter of God for whom Christ died. So may we never shut the door on somebody, but bar them wide open, lest we commit the same sin that this generation of religious people did. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you. Thank you for this word. God, we need to hear it. Churches need to hear it. Father, it's so easy to make views more important than, than yous. It's so easy to make my view the most prioritized thing. But the reality is it's not about my view. It's the you to the left and the right of me because all of the yous are for whom Christ died. All of the people in the world 
sinful as they may be, as I am, Jesus died for even me. Father, thank you for this convicting reminder of your truth, of your grace, of your way. And may we not make the same error as the previous generation did, but may we make the main thing, the main thing, which is seeing people come to know the Savior of the whole world. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.